10 windows and doors. And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great nation that has great confidence in at least one of its traditional institutions. Uh, that would be the armed services. So why is it so difficult right now to recruit the number of people they need to keep our uh, all-volunteer army going and to keep it the world's best military operation by far. Nobody better to speak to about that and to speak to about the possibility that Vladimir Putin may be losing control, that we in the United States may be losing control over the drug crisis, then uh, one of the most distinguished officers in the United States Armed Forces right now, U.S. Army General, retired, a four-star general, um, and General Barry McCaffrey. He uh, holds three Purple Heart Awards. He has uh, uh, been one of the most decorated officers, general officers we have in the Army. He has also served as what was known as drug czar, for a past presidential administration and actually helped the United States make some real progress on the war on drugs. I'm also proud to say that General McCaffrey is a friend of this show. Uh, General, thank you for... for ...has been from the start. So uh, there's a good argument, I, I thought, from the start that in the longer run, Putin has put Russia in a terrible position economically, politically, international affairs... Uh, his army's under tremendous pressure. They can't keep this up in the longer run. Uh, he's been become a pariah state. He personally is going to be in a position where he'll never be able to travel widely uh, in the coming years. So I think he's in trouble. But in the short run, the Russian armed forces still have a preponderance of artillery and air power and are smashing Ukraine's cities flat. Uh, so it's a desperate situation, and we don't yet clearly see the outcome. But I think Putin's in trouble, that's clear. You uh, said uh, recently that Putin just signed up for a 10-year event. Do you think the American political leadership and military leadership have the stomach, uh, the determination for a 10-year event? Well, we're about to find out, but I think an even more uh, concerning uh, short-term consideration is can Europe, can Germany in particular, get through the coming winter without shutting down a good bit of their manufacturing capability or indeed uh, keeping their homes warm? Because Angela Merkel, who I thought the world of, and uh, with one exception, she made herself un completely dependent upon Russian energy. Now, her argument was at the time, against U.S. Uh, advice, uh, was that this economic interdependence will make the Russians more peaceful, will make them more democratic and law-based. And, of course, that wasn't the case. So in the short run, it's going to be very difficult for the Germans and the Europeans in general to get through this winter and still sustain the Ukrainian uh, 
Zelensky uh, effort to, to, to defend their country. The, uh, the United States still would be able to get them uh, more quickly some of the weapons that they they say they need uh, and I know that's an effort that you have supported in the past uh, what about the state of the US Army there have been so many articles recently about the top command uh, looking at uh, even the possibility of lowering recruiting standards they say they're not going to do that but it could it even be true that only 23% of young Americans are qualified to enlist today is is that a problem for our country yeah I think it's a it's it's an um, not yet understood problem of huge significance because moving to a from a volunteer force to rein, reintroducing the draft is is possibly politically impossible without uh, some external threat that is existential to the survival of the United States. So I don't think the draft is, is in the cards for any reason. This coming year, we're going to lose about 12,000 end strength in the, in the Army. Uh, all the services are not going to make their end strength except the U.S. Air Force, and they're, they're scrambling to, to pull it off. So the, the biggest single problem is obesity. And following that is uh, some two-thirds now of Americans that take the, so, the Armed Forces screening test, which is common for all the services, used to be one-third of them would flunk it if you were a high school graduate. Now it's two-thirds are flunking it. Uh, and then finally, their physical conditioning beyond the obesity is just terrible. So it's hard to know where this is going. We're, the armed forces are competing with the same kids that go to uh, community college or to a university. That's who we're after. And um, I think we're also seeing a declining propensity to enlist. And some of that was due to COVID. For two years, we didn't have access to the high school kids. And some of it's due to America's educators basically telling the armed forces, stay out of our high schools. You can't come talk to our students, which is an incredible uh, state of affairs for the United States. Well, well, it is entirely considering how many people there are who only attended college or managed to attend college because of benefits under the GI Bill. Uh, that's when uh, all of a sudden we exploded in terms of the number of people who pursued and got a college education. Uh, would you favor tying together again, uh, as happened in prior generations, this idea that, well, if you want to go to college, uh, you do your service to your country first? Well, I think, for, first of all, it's not in the cards because there are many more young people by far coming of age at 18, registering for the draft, the males only, uh, than the armed forces need. We're, we're 2.1 million men and women in the active guard and reserve. So we couldn't possibly use more than a fraction of the young people coming of age. Uh, and then when you start downsizing it and say, well, the number you quoted is correct. Only 23% of American males are eligible to enlist. Uh, so that's a problem we have to face up to. They're, they're taking a bunch of very creative uh, actions. Uh, they're bringing in people on conditional enlistment, and 
90 days and we try and get you in weight and so you can do push-ups and pull-ups and two-mile run and that sort of thing. Uh, and by the way, we do have incredible inducements to enlist of, of college money. So the, the other aspect of it is you've got to have access to kids. You've got to have parents that say, no, in this family, we're proud of you serving in the armed forces for four years, uh, getting your college money, and then coming home to us. Th that's the change. It's a cultural change we also need. One of many. Uh, General McCaffrey, if you can hang with us, I do want to talk about the drug crisis, which has become just devastating when you look at the numbers. Uh, has this erased all the progress we've made in the past? We will talk about that with General Barry McCaffrey, four-star U.S. Army general, retired. Coming up on the Medved Show. which is um, the most serious and destructive and horrific nightmarish war in Europe since World War II. Uh, Ukraine has now reclaimed 46 settlements as Putin's troops are forced to give up territory through Kherson region amid uh, Kyiv's counteroffensive, which apparently has been going well. I'm speaking to uh, retired four-star general uh, Barry McCaffrey, who um, uh, has opinions watching the <laughs> all of the problems that America experiences now. Uh, there is a USA Today editorial. Uh, the headline was, Time for Change, Federal Ban on Marijuana Use Causes More Harm Than Good. Uh, General McCaffrey, you've been there in the front lines trying to fight against... Uh, the serious damage from drug abuse and addiction and proliferation to every aspect, every corner of American society. Is USA Today right? Federal ban on marijuana use causes more harm than good? No, it's astonishing. We're just losing control. This is a policy issue. I just spent some wonderful a few days in Nashville at the Gaylord Opryland, 8,000 attendees from the National Association of Drug Courts. So the people that are on the front lines of dealing with what actually occurs in addiction in rural areas and and cities and across the country, one into another. And look, the uh, the current threat to, to Americans' health and safety in the, in the you know, criminal justice system, 107,000 dead last year from overdose by illegal drugs, and 101,000 dead from alcohol. Exacerbated by the COVID crisis, it shut down the drug court system, it shut down treatment programs, it shut down hospitals. Uh, it, just an astonishing uh, uh, inducement to uh, drug abuse uh, getting out of control. And that's where it is. And part of it's related to widespread use of marijuana. Now the leading cause of stoned driving, it's more than alcohol. And if so, you know, my view is that if you're using, you know, 30% THC content marijuana, and in particular edibles, and if you're an adolescent, then you're putting yourself in an incredible risk of chronic addiction, 
leading to the use of other drugs. So I think it's utter nonsense, but it's been there's a small, well-funded drug legalization community that's pushing this argument. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's going to be a great tragedy. It'll get worse and worse, and in 10 years from now, we'll say, oh, my God, what were we thinking of? And the pendulum will swing back the other way. Now one can only hope. I, one of the things that is dramatically unknown uh, to Americans in general is the push for marijuana legalization, and initially under the disguise of medical marijuana, was largely funded by George Soros. He was enormously concerned with this, and there's so many people, conservatives, who uh, look at George Soros's political involvement. Before any of that started, he was a big uh, free marijuana guy, and uh, a legalized marijuana guy, and again, initially making progress with that in terms of medical marijuana. Did you have to deal directly with that during your time as drug czar? Oh, absolutely. I spent three hours at George Soros. And by the way, he's a perfectly intelligent, delightful man. He funds a lot of Democratic initiatives that I support. And uh, But a lot of people fixed in their bonnet. The uh, I just had an angry exchange with a young lawyer here in Seattle over this uh, same issue. A lot of people say, well, look, uh, we got a couple million people behind bars in the United States, and overwhelmingly they're there because they were arrested with a joint. And so here's my <laughs> assertion. It is not possible in America to be arrested, prosecuted, and put in jail for personal possession, not just of marijuana, but damn near any drug. Basically, nobody's that stupid. So if you're a chronic addict... We end up arresting you because you're breaking into my car, breaking into my house, doing street sex on the front steps of a police station. I mean, the disaster of addiction, and who knows what the numbers are. I'd say it's around 18 million people have a substance use disorder. That's the new term for it, which nobody recognizes. But So it's a massive problem, and marijuana is part of it. And by the way, there, there were three billionaires funding it. Soros may have been the most visible. And I, I used to use the number around 300 people in the country were active in this drug legalization effort. And it's not over. Oregon just passed a change, I think, to their state constitution that basically said personal possession of any drug for personal use is legal. What We have over 3,000 drug courts. They are marvelous. They basically take a chronic addict under arrest and say, how'd you like to spend the next year under our diversion program where we get you treatment, we get you a group living environment, uh, we get you eyeglasses, we get you employment, you know, so the drug courts are, and AA and NA are the answer to chronic addiction. But you know, and, and which drug is also an answer to disaster. It's also an answer to the homeless encampments and to Absolutely. the terrible problem of of literally hundreds of thousands now of people who are living on the streets. Uh, the majority of whom have are substance abusers. No, it's simply shameless. Here in King County, I think the last number I read was around 11,000 homeless. Uh, 
And it's there, it's two sides, by the way, of the same coin. It's substance abuse and it's mental health. And the two are linked. Uh, and you have to treat both of them in a pragmatic way. But as a general statement, one of the reasons the drug courts work so well is you have a coercion element and you have a reward element. And by the way, it's abject misery being a chronic addict. Nobody likes being an addict. So if we organize ourselves, it's not just getting people off the street, it's getting them into uh, sobriety. It's getting them into where they uh, have adequate access to medication for psychiatric illness. It's, it's disgraceful how U.S. policy is dealing with this effort, and it's getting worse by the year. This is the lethality of drug overdose and alcoholism. By the way, alcoholism is still one of the most devastating drugs in America because it's so it's legal and it's cheap and it's accessible and it's socially okay. Uh, so we're not doing very well. It's a problem for employers and parents. And uh, maybe for some enlightened leadership, as was always provided by General Barry McCaffrey. Uh, such a pleasure speaking to you, though uh, I hope it will help people get uh, a more serious attention on the issue of addiction and drug abuse. Uh, more coming up on uh, politics and its impact. Medved show. Uh, last week we uh, spoke a little bit about trying to resist the call of the doomers. And uh, doomers, as a phrase that I believe was coined originally by Jane Coaston, who is a, uh, one of the people who does a weekly uh, newsletter through the New York Times. But uh, the doomers are basically people who try to motivate other people by talking about the end of the world. If you don't get something done, if you don't elect me, if you don't send in money, uh, then everything is going to go terribly. And she writes, Jane Coaston, I'm an increasingly optimistic person. I am much more positive about the future now than I was as a teenager. She says, I blame the very bad time that is being a teenager. I remember that. And uh, I'm even sunnier today than I was in my 20s. I'm now in my 30s, she writes. Uh, some of that is because of the gift of marriage, and some of it is because of the improvements I've seen in my work and in the lives of people around me. Plus, things I would have never thought possible in politics and culture have happened in my lifetime because people refuse to give in to cynicism or accept that everything is actually terrible. And then there's another piece today, which is, uh, it's also New York Times, but this is uh, two different academic authors. And it says, fed up with Democratic emails, that's Democratic with a big D, and uh, the piece is by um, a professor at University of Pittsburgh, 
and uh, the author of a uh, book uh, called uh, The Big Disconnect, Why the Internet Hasn't Transformed Politics Yet. Okay, um, here's what they, uh, what they write. They say, National Democratic and Progressive Groups Together burned through the surge of liberal organizing under Donald Trump, treating impassioned newcomers like cash cows, gig workers, and stamp machines to be exploited, not a grassroots base to be tended. Worse, research by academics and political professionals alike suggests that many of the tactics that the left employed to engage voters proved totally ineffective. Some may even have backfired. Millions of dollars and hours were wasted in 2018 and 2020. And yet, as the party stares down a bleak midterm landscape with abortion rights on the line, the Democratic establishment and progressive organizations alike are doubling down on the same old tactics. The core role of supporters in these tactics is to be whipped into panicked giving by messages like this one from Nancy Pelosi on April 28th of this year. Quote, I asked several times, Barack Obama told you the stakes. Joe Biden made an urgent plea, she wrote. This is an email that they sent out to hundreds of thousands of people. I don't know how else to say this, so I'll be blunt. All these top Democrats would not be sounding the alarm if our democracy wasn't in immediate danger of falling to Republicans in this election. I need 8,371 patriots to step up before time runs out. It's pathetic. Rush, fifth, <laughs> rush $15 and help me close the fundraising gap before the end of the month deadline in 48 hours. Inside Democratic fundraising circles, this tactic is known as churn and burn, a way of squeezing money out of individual donors that reliably produces brief spikes in donations, but over the course of an election cycle overwhelms their willingness to keep giving. Even worse, these apocalyptic messages fuel despair. If democracy is in the balance and then Democrats fail to pass restorative measures, Voters inevitably must wonder, why keep trying? This is the same stuff that you hear from Republicans, isn't it? I mean, don't you get, uh, maybe some of you get, uh, the same kind of letter. Well, if, if we don't win this election, we'll never have an election again. This is totally, completely be... inappropriate. <laughs> there will never be a choice. Uh, we will never have the ability to because we're going to be giving up everything. Our fundamental rights are on the line. Uh, America is heading toward a civil war. The only way to avert it is to send me a check. I think it's sickening, frankly. <clears throat> on both sides, our recent studies show that the effectiveness of such approaches ranges from small to nil to negative. People who volunteer on campaigns are often nothing like other Americans in their politics. The gulf is particularly wide <clears throat> on the Democratic side, where infrequent and swing voters of all ethnicities, ages, and life experiences tend to encounter highly educated liberal and white volunteers. Yet national groups continue to push this approach. <clears throat> this year, Vote Forward aims to have volunteers print and send some 10 million 
heavily scripted voter turnout letters. With most of the personalization gone and the risks of counterproductive freelancing clear, one could well ask why these groups are using volunteers at all. Are uh, letters to uh, voters just churn, chum, to draw in small-dollar donors? A gig economy scheme that works only because volunteers pay for their own stamps? I got a, a letter, a form letter, and of course... I'm sure it was sent to tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, Dear Michael, first name basis, uh, this is Don Jr. It was um, the junior, Don Jr., Donald Trump Jr. He says, uh, I was just talking to my father, and he was very surprised because he didn't see your name on the list of donors. Now, I I don't (laughs) give to political campaigns. And uh, the the idea that, that Donald Trump, in in the middle of a campaign, is looking and saying, where's that Medved guy? You know, I, well, maybe he wasn't one of my biggest supporters. I wasn't. And, but the, the whole idea that someone is supposed to believe that Trump's feelings are hurt if you haven't given to him. I mean, they do the same stupid stuff with Biden. They do the same stupid stuff with Bernie Sanders. And I'm sure if they are running for office, they'll do the same kind of stuff with Ron DeSantis and with uh, Gavin Newsom or whoever the politicians are going to be. Uh, the, uh, th- this article in the Times says that this is more of a problem for Democrats. Why? Because they say that, that Republicans actually have their own affinity groups. They say uh, Republicans, of course, also treat the news as an endless series of crises, but their calls to oppose socialism or critical race theory or transgender-inclusive bathrooms generate energy that flows into local groups that have a lasting visible presence in their communities, such as anti-abortion networks, Christian homeschoolers, and gun clubs. Right-wing activists are encouraged to run for local office by overlapping regional, statewide, and national personal networks that conservatives have built with decades of sustained investment. When not connected to such networks, Democrats receiving apocalyptic messages can feel more battered than activated, leading to demoralization and despair. Well, demoralization and despair... Uh, I mean, maybe a, a little bit of demoralization is inevitable when Democrats are losing, and they are. And uh, But the idea that uh, the country is going to thrive on demoralization and despair and thrive on the idea that you have to uh, dig into your pocket, and when you think about what that money actually gets used for, it's, it's not to feed people who are hungry. It's not to clothe people who are freezing cold, certainly not in, in August. Uh, it's, it's money that's used to pay campaign consultants and usually run negative ads. Good luck with that. We'll be right back on The Medved Show. came in on our uh, program, special program that uh, we offered 
uh, on last Friday, which was the um, myths, mistakes, and misunderstandings uh, about World War II. And uh, James wrote in from Seattle, uh, wrote in on Friday when we played that sh show, said, heard you today refer to December 7th, 1941, a Japanese attack using the woke, woke term surprise as opposed to sneak attack. A surprise does not carry the moral judgment that sneak does, as in surprise, happy birthday. Uh, I, I don't, uh, I certainly did not use the term surprise to try to convoke any, a, any aspect at all of Japanese innocence for a, a, a unprovoked attack that killed almost 3,000 Americans. There were almost the same number of Americans who died at Pearl Harbor as who died on September 11th. But, uh, the, uh, the, the idea of going back and uh, it's, it's one of those things where one of the moving aspects that they played when uh, Prime Minister Abe of uh, Japan was killed horribly in, uh, with that homemade gun in Japan recently, they played some of the, the footage of uh, Abe coming to Pearl Harbor and nodding his head in respect to the Americans who had died there at the hands of uh, a, a truly evil Japanese assault. And President Obama came to Hiroshima and he also prayed with uh, Prime Minister Abe there, who was Prime Minister of Japan at the time, over all of the uh, Japanese civilians, mostly, who had died at Hiroshima. And I, I know that at the time there was an attempt by people, and I was very resistant to it, and I've, I've talked about this, and I even talked about it a little bit on the special we did on World War II, which, by the way, you can get if you have a, a Med, MedHead Plus membership, which costs you all of 22 cents a day. You not only get access to this show uh, anytime you want at, uh, uh, and with the commercial free, as a matter of fact. So it goes even faster. And, uh, and you can get that uh, World War II special or all the other history shows we have free as a MedHead Plus member. In any event, that uh, it's, it's one of those things. There's no moral equivalence between Hiroshima and... Pearl Harbor, and I know people would say that uh, uh, no, 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 no. The, the Hiroshima was even worse because there were many, th uh, many times more people who died in Hiroshima, and that's true. And they were mostly civilians, whereas the people who died in Pearl Harbor were mostly military. Uh, there still is a difference between an unprovoked attack on a peaceful country that has taken a policy that you feel uh, violates your national interest, that's a very different thing than in the middle of the war making an attack to shorten the war, which was Hiroshima was. 
and to save both American and Japanese lives. No, this is big news. Washington Post is reporting that the al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri, who played a key role in the 9-11 attacks, was killed in a U.S. operation. Officials say Zawahiri was one of the world's most wanted terrorists, assuming leadership of the organization after U.S. forces killed its founder, Osama bin Laden. Do you remember Zawahiri? He had a, um, uh, a sore, uh, a big lump on his forehead right over his eyebrows and on, on the center of his head there which he apparently got by banging his head on the floor in prayer with great fervency. Uh, when people uh, become religiously fanatic and that leads them to murderous evil, that, uh, it seems to me, is an indication of uh, someone who will not be missed. Uh, he was the number two to bin Laden. I'm actually surprised it's taken... Uh, the anti-terrorist forces of decency in the world so long to eliminate him. It was a U.S. drone strike. Well, isn't that amazing? Uh, something else settled. Uh, Guy Reffitt, who was a right-wing militia recruiter for the Three Percenters, who brought a gun to the U.S. Capitol on January 6th 2021, has received a seven-year prison sentence, by far the longest term yet of anyone sentenced for their part in the riot. The, the reason that he got a longer sentence was because he didn't make a plea deal. He didn't plead guilty. A refit, a senior member of the Three Percenters Militia, was the first of those charged to opt to go to trial instead of taking a plea agreement. A jury found him guilty of five felonies committed during uh, the riot, including uh, bringing a firearm to the Capitol and interfering with an official proceeding. He didn't enter the building. Jackson Reffitt, Guy's son, testified against him in his trial, saying his father had discouraged them from turning him in. The elder Reffitt reportedly told his son that traitors get shot. And he said, I never thought our father would say that to us, Jackson said. His daughter also testified at the trial and at the sentencing. I, uh, it was reported that Reffitt was going to make some kind of statement. And if he did and if it exists on tape and we can play it for you, we will play it tomorrow. I think it's interesting how someone like that looking at seven years in prison uh, would would actually um, would actually talk about what had happened to him and what he did. Uh, there's also this from Tom. Well, we will we will get to that tomorrow because right now there's a film that I thoroughly enjoyed. It was playing in theaters, had a successful run in theaters, and now it is streaming and it is available to everybody. It is the follow-up to Downton Abbey, the TV series and the first film, Downton Abbey, A New Era. Listen. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. 
1928, the familiar characters of Downton Abbey welcome a visiting group of Hollywood professionals who want to use their elegant premises as the location for a new silent film's production. That's the basic setting for the rich and for the rewarding Downton Abbey, a new era, now playing in theaters. The modern world comes to Downton. You steer ahead. You're the captain now. Maybe, but the real star of the movie again is Maggie Smith as Lady Violet, who, in a puzzling subplot, receives an unexpected inheritance based on a long-ago secret romance. The cast is polished and accomplished as always, with the terrific new addition of Laura Haddock as an insecure but much-admired Hollywood silent star. The script bears unmistakable elements of soap opera, but the enchantment is still undeniable. Rated an appropriate PG, Downton Abbey a new era earns three stars and is still worth a visit and uh, again it uh, they they almost surely will continue advancing with this array of endearing characters and uh, 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 admirable characters through history uh, now that they've reached 1928 uh, speaking of moving through history there is a new report and analysis that says the United States is facing a new and very dangerous era of political violence as threats against lawmakers rise. Is there anything good about that? We will get to it uh, Tuesday on the Medved Show. There are also two professors who have written a piece for the Wall Street Journal. It's very important. It says, you know all those reports about how religion is dying out in America? People aren't going to church anymore. They don't believe anymore. They don't read the Bible. Completely untrue, they say, based on a, a massive new study across the country. A religion's actually flourishing. So why is it so well hidden? We'll get to that next time. Also, a piece on CNN saying that, yes, Republicans are riding high, but they could still 